Всем добрый вечер. Все мы тут. On behalf of the brave. We have freedom. Give us wings to protect it. Наши військові тут. Громадяни суспільства тут. Всі ми тут. Захищаємо нашу незалежність. Нашу державу. Так буде далі. Слава нашим захисникам. Слава нашим захисницам. Слава Україні! Добре вечер. Good evening, afternoon, or morning, wherever you're tuning in from. Welcome to Tochny. Welcome to Tochny in a week in which Ukrainian resilience continues to inspire the free world. Welcome to Tochny in a week in which Vladimir Putin has been charged with war crimes by the International Criminal Court. Before we look at a story behind this headline and others, which is what we do here at Tochny. I'd like to tell you that you are free to request the mic at any time if you want to comment on or question uh, about any topics discussed. The Q&A starts now. This has been a week which has seen the wheels of justice for Ukraine and its people accelerate. Initially, with the UN Human Rights Commission's published findings of Moscow's war crimes against Ukraine and its people, crimes which, within both the detail of the UNHRC's report, a precursor to the ICC's war crimes charges, relates to experiences which Ukrainians have witnessed, Ukrainians have suffered and testified to, and experiences which many Western observers have recorded, crimes as charged of systematic design and very deliberate in their perpetration. This week, marks not an apotheosis in the ceaseless efforts to bring justice against those responsible for war crimes in Ukraine, but accentuates the work of other lesser-known but significant teams of people who deserve recognition for their diligent endeavours, work which continues at this hour and will do so long into the future. It is work which, up to this point, reveals that all that is, and has been, is but the twilight of the dawn. It is not the work of specific politicians or public figures I speak of, nor the voices of hyperbole and mediocrity. No, it is the researchers at Yale's public school of health, specifically its humanitarian research lab, whose long work on this has been done without much public fanfare, and whose recent published work is pertinent to this week's events, work which evidences a program designed and enforced by the Russian government to forcibly relocate and recondition through trauma Ukrainian children. It is in this, behind the news story of this week, which our focus of this moment resides. Where? are these deported Ukrainians? Where are they being held? What conditions are they enduring? Yale's Humanitarian Research Lab's academics evidenced in their latest report the forced relocation of 
6,000 Ukrainian children from Ukraine, each of whom has been transported to one of a network of 43 re-education and adoption facilities throughout the territories of the Russian Federation. Facilities which stretch from occupied Crimea to Siberia. The researchers at Yale have been using geospatial analysis, satellite imagery, reference photographs, and user-generated photos on mapping sites to geolocate these camp facilities. Now, we know that the precise total of Ukraine, Ukrainian children abducted by Russians and transported into the Russian Federation is yet unknown and may remain so until this war's end following Ukrainian victory. However, the Yale research or results which merit noting that these 6,000 Ukrainian children mentioned in Yale's report are being held at locations far from their homes and in facilities detrimental to their welfare. Facilities including psychiatric hospitals. From occupied Crimea to Siberia, these facilities span the entirety of the territories of the current Russian Federation. There is, for an example, a camp in Magadan, 3,000 miles away from Ukraine's border, which, as the Yale report noted, is closer to the United States than it is to these children's homes in Ukraine. Also noted in the Yale report is the remarkable figure that 78% of these camps are, quote, systematically engaged with re-education, end quote, in a process which has seen Ukrainian children forced to undergo, quote, pro-Russian cultural and in some instances military training, end quote. Multiple facilities enforce this regime's assimilation program of the Kremlin's quoted vision of national culture, history, and society. As we know, there are some well-known individuals in this chronology who have publicly recorded themselves being active participants in these deportations. The now ICC charge, she said, Miss Belova has gone on record as having, quote, adopted a young boy from Mariupol. So, relatedly, Yale recorded that a number of Ukrainian children have already been documented as having been placed within Russian families in the Moscow area. The Yale researchers with regards to this revealed the following, that the network facilitating this is, quote, centrally operated, and this relocation program is centrally operated by the federal government of the Russian Federation at a local, at a regional, and at a national level, and by its federal leaders at every level of the Russian government. So the term systemic guilt has been used to describe this as the ICC charges deliberate scheme to force Ukrainian children to remove Ukrainian children from their society and from their homes and to raise them as citizens of another country. Uh, such a crime, if proven at the ICC, contravenes the UN Convention on the Prevention of Genocide, in particular Article 2E, which specifically states that 
forcibly removing children from one national ethnic group to another, as relates to the case with this forcible abduction of Ukrainian children, is one of the crimes which constitute genocide. Despite being a signatory to the UN Convention on Genocide since it began the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, Russia has even changed its own laws to make it easier to adopt Ukrainian children. With regards to the Ukrainian children who have not been adopted, but are being held in facilities such as those aforementioned, to this day, at this hour, there are still camps holding Ukrainians. Camps such as those at Medvezhonok, which currently holds at least 300 Ukrainian people. Attempts by Ukrainian parents to find their lost children have been met by outright denial by the Russian authorities, who commonly deny that these children exist. These attempts to return their lost children are also met by resistance to the process of exchange, an exchange for children which is delayed by their capitals at every step. As allies of Ukraine in this matter, perhaps we we can only continue to highlight the work of people such as the Yale researchers to our elected representatives and provide them with Yale's published geospatial analysis work, work which has led to the location of the psychiatric hospital or camp facilities these children are being held in. We can only continue to support the efforts of UNHRC in their documentation of this and other war crimes. As stated this week, despite a frustration existing amongst some of the pedestrian pace of publication of these reports, these Yale researchers typically spend hours staring at computer screens, examining data for the purpose as Nathaniel Raymond's Yale HRL Executive Director and Lecturer at the Yale School of Public Health stated recently, for the purpose of saving human lives in another part of the world. It is therefore perhaps unlikely that Mr. Putin and Ms. Belova and others will ever see a courtroom. The ICC has no powers to arrest suspects. It can only exercise jurisdiction within its member countries. And the Russian Federation is uh, not one of them. <clears throat> it may affect the ability of the accused to travel internationally to one of the 123 ICC member states. And this issue has been debated. The focus resides for us at this moment at Tochny on the work done by Yale in this story behind the headlines. So perhaps, although Mr. Putin and Ms. Belova will never see a courtroom, it, 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 and it is unlikely, but I, I would contend not impossible. Precedence exists in the form of how Slobodan Milosevic was caught. That we will see. Much has been written and spoken of about a child's resilience, that their resilience is perhaps underestimated by adults. Since 1945, a significant number of studies from universities and medical schools and researchers around the world have revealed statistical trends which are unfortunately impossible to ignore in any objective analysis of Ukraine's abducted children. For the Ukrainian children who survived this war, the following conclusion from the Stockholm Research Institute will unfortunately hold true for a as yet unknown number of them. That their abduction and mistreatment as a result of Russia's and the Russians' actions during this war 
will impact these Ukrainian children's, quote, psychological development, leading to mental health disorders, emotional and conduct problems, and impaired cognitive development, which have relevance for their life opportunities, including social relations and school performance, end quote. This, of course, impacts whatever occupation they may end up pursuing as adults and their relationships with others, including those who they love and those who love them. It is not a reach to presume that many of these children have already been denied the chance of a life they could have had before the 24th of February 2022. We work for a better life for them. We organize and volunteer and stand in our streets on days like the 24th of February this year. For them, we campaign for their safe and swift release from their captors' hands. These stolen children deserve the collective action of all free people. In 2023, I remember that we are not the first generation of people to hear of such a crime. Stories, poetry, and records of historical events about or inspired by similar crimes echo down the ages. Echo as Yates still does today. But for children lost, stolen, or taken from parents or family, the world is more full of weeping than they can understand. We recognize that this, as charged war crime, will be recorded in history for its magnitude. We know that future generations will judge our responses to these events. The stolen child in this case, for some, can still be recovered. But time and tide do not wait. It is incumbent on free people everywhere to campaign vocally and in written form to their elected representatives for as many of these stolen children and adults to be returned. For, since the affairs of people rest uncertain, we reason with the worst that may befall them. We will now take a moment, and I'd like to ask anyone who has any questions on this topic to please request and come up to comment or ask a question. And I'm delighted to say that um, our contributor here at Hochney, Charles, has his hand up. Thank you very much uh, for the very moving introduction, Wendy, and uh, covering this topic. Clearly, this has been a, a monumental uh, topic over this week. Um, my question is about a little bit more of the specifics of not only the network of, of camps and, and so on, but also of how... Um, you know, a, a, an American university, you know, with Yale has has worked this out. Um, I think I think you know, looking at some of the tweets and some of the reports that have come out, um, they seem to have a lot of detail, such as uh, things like um, seventy eight percent of the camps are engaged in systematic reeducation, um, which this is quote unquote exposed. Uh, children from Ukraine to Russian-centric academia, cultural, patriotic, and our military education. Um, are there any insights from your side how how this how they get that kind of information? That's a good question, Charles. One of the um, one of the things that Raymond um, Nathaniel Raymond spoke to um, was that this research being done by Yale, the the sources cannot be fully disclosed at this time in a lot of cases for uh, because it runs the risk of jeopardizing the flow of information coming from one place but 
uh, Yale's Humanitarian Research Lab, which is where this work has been taking place, has been picking through, analyzing in detail uh, a lot of a lot of imagery, user-generated photos from mapping sites such as Yandex and geolocating locations based on uh, based on the photographs and the information that they receive. There's uh, there's a tweet that I'm going to put up into the nest, but it's just going to take me a few seconds. Uh, maybe I can just ask a, a quick follow-up while you're while you're doing that. I mean, one of the things I see in the report is is about um, how all levels of Russia's government are involved. There are actually, I think, about eight major points which we could probably cover at length here uh, today. But one of them is is all levels of Russia's government are involved. That it's coordinated not only from the federal, but also from the local level, and they highlight several dozen parties involved in all of this. Do you think that this is part of the background to the charges that were published by the ICC, the systematic nature of it? Uh, yes. Karim Khan, the ICC chief prosecutor, did an interview with CNN straight after the release of of the ICC's uh, charges. And um, it was certainly clear from what he said and from, from the press conference that the ICC gave and um, their subsequent statements that these are the first charges and we should expect more. And what what the charges state is that they've, they've of course, charged Vladimir Putin, president of the Russian Federation, and he is first on the charge sheet for this because he has authority over the actions of his state. And this is uh, the second person on the charge sheet, of course, is Miss Miss Belova, who infamously was in an interview with uh, Mr. Putin um, not so long ago, in which she told him that she had, quote, adopted a 15-year-old boy from Mariupol. And then she said, thanks to you. This is, uh, this kind of evidence has clearly been taken into account by the ICC. Miss Belova has publicly been hiding nothing about her actions, been uh, the, the, the public face of Russia's deportation of Ukrainian children. And she's also been the public face of the resettlement, the relocation of Ukrainian children across the, the territories of the, of the Russian Federation. There's been a number of videos featuring her in which Ukrainian children have been pictured. And uh, as the researchers at Yale said, these children have been um, adopted uh, in many areas across uh, that country. There's a lot of them which have been adopted around the Moscow area. So, yeah, to answer your question, Charles, expect more. We should expect more charges. These are the first of many. And they've gone after two people who have never once attempted to hide uh, their actions. Thanks for your question. Joseph, um, please go ahead. Yeah, uh, I guess my question would be, you know, I, I've read a few accounts. I think, you know, we, we've heard kind of varying accounts of of uh, what what types of conditions people are subjected to. But I think one of one of the things that kind of stuck with me was that a lot of these camps and a lot of these places have kind of outdated Soviet, you know, they're, they're being driven around in outdated Soviet buses. 
they're being brought to kind of outdated Soviet buildings. And it kind of all has this kind of vibe of a sort of a cult of, you know, a, a sort of cult where the Soviet Union never ended, something like that, right? And I guess, you know, th that was kind of, I think there was a lot that I I gleaned from just sort of firsthand personal accounts in terms of the, the color of what the, these places are like. Again, understanding that there's not, um, that, that everyone's personal experiences are going to be different. Were there, was there anything that stood out to you in terms of people's personal accounts of what they went through in these camps uh, that, that might, you know, shed some light for our listeners on kind of, that, that might illustrate a larger point about them? Uh, uh, when... uh, yeah, thanks, Joseph. Um, I think I can't really speak to uh, individual stories, and I, I, I'll explain why. The, the, the stories regarding people who escaped filtration can be told. Filtration has been a, 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 a process which has commonly seen uh, as reported, I'm just reporting these words, commonly seen as um, one where uh, males are imprisoned or executed and women are taken elsewhere and uh, children are separated. This is not the universal experience of, e of everybody who, who goes through filtration, from what I can judge. Uh, but what we do know is that a large number of people a large number of children, as Yale pointed out, are being held in conditions in which their parents are not present. Um, they're being held by a country which invaded their own. So they are clearly they are clearly vulnerable, and vulnerable children um, within being kept within families, within uh, buildings, homes, and within a system uh, which has, uh, of course you know, very notorious standards uh, when it comes to the treatment of uh, vulnerable people. This is a this is an obvious concern. And the Yale research, the, the, the very fact that it managed to reveal that part of these children's experience of re-education, being involved in pro-Russian cultural and military training in some instances, this speaks to uh, this speaks to situations where vulnerable people are being put into situations with adults uh, who who do not care for their welfare. In terms of the children who are held in larger facilities, such as the 300 at Magadan, this, of course, is even, even more concerning, uh, because in larger facilities such as this, for vulnerable people, there is uh, an even greater chance that uh, this vulnerability uh, is exploited by adults. So uh, I've just noticed that um, the time is uh, has, has ticked by on this segment, but we're just going to bring up uh, Shook. He was just requested. Shook, if you can hear me, I'm trying to bring you up. Hi. Uh, yes, I Welcome. can hear you. Welcome. It's great. It's great to see you here, Shook. Thanks for coming. Do you uh, do you have a comment or a question you'd like to uh, like to add? Thank you for bringing me up. I have been occasionally collecting uh, some of the information regarding uh, children from Ukraine being abducted. One of the documents that I found, it was published on the 27th of January this year, uh, mentioning that the journalists have discovered 14 Ukrainian orphans uh, from Kherson being brought to um, a Crimea orphanage, and they were treated with brutal conditions. And this was a, a well-documented article on this, which I can share subsequently with the listeners and everyone. 
and also some of the actually very concerning uh, situation that I have found were some of the reports that adopted uh, children were actually being sexually exploited through kind of uh, there's a, a network uh, being set up of which these adopted children were being offered to uh, different clients for child sex through telegrams and they were actually quite a number of reports that confirm with the telegram information that they were uh, they found out about this sex trafficking and also there were another report uh, at the Moscow Times on the 3rd of February it says that the uh, Kiev Human Rights Commissioner uh, accused um, uh, the Russians of kidnapping the children and then selling them for sex so there's quite a number of very concerning reports that point out that adopted children not only are being put through filtration camps and adopted by who knows what kind of a families, um, but they possibly also being uh, put into a sex trafficking. Yeah, and thank you for that. I think the testimonies you spoke of there are what we fear. And given the evidence we have seen, and the evidence that you and I have seen, we, we, we can assume this is happening. One of, one, of the, one of the difficult aspects of this is in the context of the ICC charges, the reporting of this, it, it has to use, uh, it, it, when, when one reports this, the words allegedly and as charged are, are used to report it. And uh, there, there is, I mean, it, it's, it's almost, you know, if a historian was to look at this in the future, there are, of course, a number of ways which historians establish the veracity of the things like um, eyewitness testimony, photographic evidence. It's what we call primary source evidence. And um, what you just spoke of is the kind of uh, evidence which the ICC, I am sure, are taking into account right now. There is going to be a long arm to Ukrainian justice, and the ICC will wait as long as it takes. It did so with Slobodan Milosevic. It is doing so with others. It will do so in this case. Thank you for your question. All right. It is half past the hour, ah, folks. So, because it's half past the hour, I've got a nice bit of news to bring you, which is that our military segment is is upon us. And uh, the news behind the headlines this week for our military segment is being led by our stalwart of this space, Charles. So, Charles... What, what what would you like to talk about this week? Yeah, thanks, Wendy. Actually, um, we have kind of a potpourri of military topics today. Um, there have been, I would say, no major events that obviously each day in Ukraine is, uh, is momentous uh, in terms of what happens, but no major changes uh, to the front lines. We talked about Bakhmut a couple of weeks ago. We've been talking about that, um, you know, in social media and sort of in the analysis side uh, for months now. So, so that certainly is still one of the topics. We're also looking at Avdivka uh, in the southeast part of the front. I would say just outside Donetsk city. Russian casualties remain extremely high. I believe our, our seven-day average is up around uh, 830 at the moment. Unbelievable amounts of casualties, as we would expect through the uh, the style of 
of offensive that the Russians are conducting at the moment. There were also some 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 background uh, things that happened. Uh, Ramstein uh, 10, or the Ukrainian contact group, met this week. Uh, there's a NATO summit coming up. There's also discussion about uh, munitions, which we discussed last week, but uh, you know, questions about specific munitions. And of course, then there are announcements regarding uh, MiG-29 uh, from Slovakia and uh, potentially from Poland. And of course, then uh, F-16s from the United States. So, so we've got sort of a, a large mix of topics. Uh, we're not going to go into all of them today, but what I wanted to do uh, to start because we've got Gurney here as well, but I wanted to kind of lay out a framework of how, uh, when we're discussing this at Tochni, how do we, at least how do I sort of process all this information? Um, because we're getting things daily, including very, very detailed information. And what we know uh, when we look at this, and when we look at this Russian invasion from you know, from farther away. First of all, it's amazing that we know as much as we know, but we know the strategic inputs, generally speaking. We know we have signals based on what is the will to fight, what is the material, and what is the manpower. And within each one of those, if you imagine that sort of like a, a triangle of strategy, and the more you have of all of that, uh, the bigger your capability is, course we can break that down into what is the quality of equipment and material what is the capability of of manpower what how well educated they are what is the will to fight show you know what does conscription do which we see news again this week on on further conscription measures in in russia which never really stopped but may need to be accelerated again and so we sort of look at that i at that strategic triangle of, okay, what is the manpower? What is the materiel that includes technology and capabilities from the, from the equipment side? And what is the will to fight? Then we can see the inputs on that. We can also see the outputs. And the outputs are, okay, what is the tactical implementation? How do the Russians or the Ukrainians attack? What do videos show us? What do eyewitness reports tell us? What does success or failure on the battlefield tell us? What we often don't see clearly is that piece in the middle, which is the, say, the leadership of managing those inputs into the outputs. What is their, what is their ability to plan operations? What is their ability in terms of leadership? How do they take these inputs and transform them into capabilities. Now, the more data points we get on all of these kinds of things, whether they be a specific event on the tactical side, or whether they be a specific announcement on the input side, we can start to draw lines. Now, here we are about six months after uh, the major um, Ukrainian counteroffensives in, in Kharkiv and, and in Kherson. And also a change in in Russian inputs in terms of manpower, material, and so on. So we're starting to get enough data points now where we're starting to see, okay, well, this is the way that Russia is, is fighting the war. This is the way that Ukraine is fighting the war at the moment. That, of course, can change. And so I just wanted to kind of highlight that, that framework uh, that we look at 
as we're trying to process some of this information that comes in. Um, but we, like I said, we do have a few topics today, and luckily I'm here. I've got I've got Gurney here, so maybe Gurney first. Maybe we can talk about Bakhmut if that's okay with you. Does that sound all right? Yeah, yeah. Let's go for it. Okay. So uh, a couple weeks ago on this space on this pod- podcast, we talked about uh, John and I talked about okay, well, what would the impact be for Ukraine to pull out of Bakhmut and you know to get out of this pocket and some things have changed some things haven't over the last couple of weeks i think at the time actually some of us were thinking me included probably better to get out but they didn't they decided to stay they allocated more and more resources to it so when you look at bakhmut right now in terms of everything that's happened over the last couple of weeks uh what do you see Oh, you know, that's a really good question. If what what do I see and what do we see, you know, in the Twitter space um, and in other spaces out there? I, I'm not sure. I can tell you, I can tell you, we don't see the full picture, but there are some some nuggets and bits and pieces out there that I think are, are pretty good. Um, I'm going to keep it to like the last week here and just, um, you know, assume for, for continuity here that our audience has sort of heard some of our previous conversations talking about uh, moot both from the perspective of, of granular items and then moot from the perspective of what we don't know. So I'm just continuing with that real quick, Charles. You know, what we've seen in moot this week, there's been some some conversations out there. Um, I think Michael Weiss had, had posited one of them. I'm not sure his source, but it's kind of um, taking sort of a, a countervailing view in terms of we've heard a lot of people talking about what they think they see in Bakhmut and, and that, um, just to put that in some uh, there seemed to be a bunch of discourse talking about perhaps the Ukrainians should pull out of Bakhmut. Um, the 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 risk and loss of Ukrainian soldiers was no longer worth um, worth the effort to continue to hold it. Um, that seemed to be in the discourse out there, the prevailing view for for maybe a, a week or two or or even three. Um, and then I'm just going to refer to to that to that post by Michael White here. And perhaps there's other calculations being made, and and it posited sort of in Bakhmut. Um, that perhaps the, the Ukrainian military um, came to a slightly different view in, in the fact that um, they weren't sure they could predict where Russia would mass uh, its forces um, at a time and place of its choosing if they were to withdraw. So, again, this is just a discourse out there. Then we've had some, um, you know, we've, we've had some interviews, firsthand interviews with the um, in the Twitter spaces out there with uh, a Ukrainian battalion commander. So there's a lot of seemingly conflicting reports, Charles, out there. I don't think they all are really conflicting. I think it's different perspectives uh, of trying to parse together what is occurring. So I'm going to pass it back to you for some for some granular items about what you see occurring in Bakhmut. No, no worries. Yeah, I mean, so I think a lot of us who are following this uh, this battle closely, Look, it's been going on a long time, and and I can even go back to to January timeframe when the question arose: is okay, does the Ukrainian approach to Bakhmut, dare I say, even stubbornness um, to hold it at all costs, does that jeopardize their capability to to start offensives uh, later? The Ukrainians are are allocating a lot of forces to Bakhmut, and there is a whole task force there, and so there is this kind of comparative attrition aspect going on. Um, so we know that the Russians are u- losing a lot of soldiers in Bakhmut, um, but the question is, is, okay, what is the quality of those? 
versus you know what what the Ukrainians might be allocating to that. So that's one aspect, and and that was you know we, that was looked at even months ago. Okay, what is the value? You know, lately now within the last week or so, we see some increasing, we'll say, contradictory viewpoints or or dissatisfaction even within the Ukrainian military that okay maybe the local commanders have made a wrong choice, but of course President Zelensky has come out and said we are going to defend it uh, completely. There was in in this thread there was an interesting article this week in the Economist, which was it was an opinion piece from Pran Stefan Gadi, who's a, a military strategist, um, but well respected, talking about the cultural transformation within the Ukrainian military itself from uh, post-Soviet uh, understanding of warfare to more Western-style warfare, which, of course, in Western doctrine, it would be, you know, the, the idea of, of trying to get into an attritional or attritional uh, ground war is not not desired. So that comes up. So aspect number two, you know, what is the issue within the Ukrainian military themselves, itself, in terms of lower level commanders or what soldiers may perceive in terms of whether this is the right or the wrong decision? How does this affect cohesion? How does this affect, you know, the ability to, to actually sort of implement doctrine uh, moving forward? Uh, using new equipment. And then I guess the the final one that we're looking at is we're seeing it also a similar aspect in Avdivka. So um, the Ukrainians are holding on to Avdivka tooth and nail. They This this battle of Avdivka goes back to 2014 in the initial uh, Russian invasion. It was first taken, then it was retaken by the Ukrainians. It has been a critical uh, keystone of the Ukrainian defense and the Ukrainian front line in the Donbass uh, for many years. And now again, we look at the same tactics, at least, and the same operations with this partial encirclement. So there's a lot to unpack here, I would say. I- I've just kind of thrown those out there. Any any thoughts, Gurney? Yeah. And Charles, let me go back to something you said there. So, so you're asking in the framing of the question, you're asking, you know, what do we know and not know about Bakhmut? And and one of the things you just mentioned there, um, the statement about attritional ground war is not desired. That's at least the one thing I think all all parties can agree on in terms of, you know, no one wants Ukraine uh, to seek an attritional ground war, right? But but springing from that, I guess the so the, the divergence happens after that statement. So so that's front in everyone's minds you know that's when, when you hear someone talking about perhaps it's time to leave bakhmut i mean that that assertion is is part of it right they do not want to see ukraine in the traditional ground war um but there's some things that we don't know there's a lot of things we don't know you know we don't know on the resource and, and input sides of ukraine and russia so knowing that the traditional ground war is not desired um it's hard to to really put it on Bakhmut to say what should or shouldn't happen. And, and what I mean by that is if the Ukrainians were to leave Bakhmut under that that assertion that attritional ground was not desired, um, that doesn't guarantee that uh, Russia would not attempt to choose at the time and place of its choosing 
to continue that attritional groundwork. And I think that's the I think that's one of the the countervailing viewpoints that seems to have emerged a little bit this week. Um, and if you can't guarantee that, then I think that goes back here again, not really knowing what's happening in Bakhmut, but but we should consider that Ukrainian commanders are possibly saying we don't know that Russia would wouldn't have continued to choose an attritional ground war somewhere else. And so I think that's good to add just into, you know, into our, our minds as we see what's happening in Bakhmut uh, on a granular level. And, and maybe I'll toss it back to here, just pulling it down from a little bit higher level into granular levels. It does look like we're seeing a little bit less activity in Bakhmut. Um, in particular, even if it still has um, certain high-intensity sectors to the northeast uh, and to the southwest. Um, so I'll pause there and flip that back to you. But I think everyone can agree that that they didn't want to see Ukraine engage in the traditional ground war. But the one thing I take from that is, is that's assuming um, that you can control that outcome. I mean, there are there there is an adversary in this case that is trying to remove that choice for you. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, it, it makes sense. And and you know, going back several months after the the collapse of Ferson and and getting behind the Nipro and you know there was that question. Okay, well, where where can Russia focus forces and and with the mobilization and so on. So, I think that's a really good point. If not Bakhmut, then where? Um, because this is, in my opinion, at least that the way Russia is fighting the war the way that they can. So if I go back to that kind of will to fight manpower and materiel triangle of, you know, the input, they certainly have the ability to leverage more manpower, albeit at a, at a lower quality. And so therefore, if, if, if I were in that situation, you know, what is the type of war that I need? I need an attritional-based uh, conflict. So, so I think I I think you actually have a really good point there, which is, you know, if not Bakhmut, then where it would be Volodarby, Zaporizhia, it'd be Kremenad. I also completely agree. I I think I'm hesitant to say that we're seeing the final phases of this Russian offensive. Being, you know, the indications that there will be fur- further mobilization make me hopeful that I think that we're seeing at least the awareness that the casualties are, are hitting on, on the manpower side. We've also seen that in Kremina that the Russians haven't been able to continue to attack, um, that maybe they're pretty much expended in Bakhmut. The progress has slowed, even on the northern side of the city. Certainly not to say that it's over. It can certainly still be, be difficult. In Avdivka, you know, the Russians have a few key terrain features that they're going to need to approach in the coming weeks. Uh, for example, the coke plant, which is very heavily defended. There's also a, a huge strong point on the south part of the town. Like I said, this has gone back to 2014. So, yeah, so I, I, I think you're right. But looking now, then, if I turn the, the conversation just a little bit uh, to some of the materiel issues. Okay, so recently we had the Ramstein uh, 10. Nothing really came out of it, but, you know, the Ukrainian defense minister came out and tweeted and used the the phrase 
create an armored fist. He was very optimistic about that. Optimistic about this, uh, with the support from the Western nations, and he used the phrase "armored fist." Does that resonate with you? What do you, what do you think if if he wrote that? Yeah, you know, he, we're we're talking about the Ukrainian um, defense minister who's been very self aware this whole time and and very PR savvy. So. I give him credit. He can have many meanings at once. So I'm, I'm not quite sure when he says things what he means by them because he he's very good at having many meanings embedded within that. Uh, but one thing that's come into my mind here, with, with whether it's armored fist or in past statements, he's said, um, you know, maneuver warfare. Um, I don't know if he's directly said combined arms, but we did see, uh, and hopefully there's the movement on this, the MiG twenty nine discussion this week. Um, and from from both Poland and Slovakia. Um, I don't have the numbers on me, but uh, that was one thing in my head. Whenever he's made that term before, my head was always wondering, like, okay, for for that armored fist of, to work of, of, you know, the combination of, of Western tanks and IFVs that they've been getting, I've always wanted to see some air assets go with that. And hopefully there's some real traction on those MiG-29 systems uh, and that we can, on a granular level, to start discussing that this week and find out what those are, or maybe we won't find out. But that's that's coming to my mind as relevant this week when when you ask me when he says that. And I know it doesn't sound like armored fist, like we're talking about on the ground, but it sounds uh, cryptically what what might go along with that. Yeah, you know, I must say I'm, I've been a bit skeptical on the on the air side. Um, so I saw the announcement of the MIG site. Please, somebody correct me in DMs. I believe it was 13 from Slovakia, and then there was kind of a, a vague uh, announcement from Duda, the president of you, or excuse me, of, of Poland, talking about four uh, MiG-29. But I, mu- I must say, I've always been a bit skeptical uh, regarding the MiG-29s, in that I, I kind of had the feeling that if the Ukrainian Air Force really tried to push for air superiority, even locally, that the Russians would still have the equipment to combat that air superiority. I, I must say, personally, I've, I've sort of just kind of been stuck on the idea that air superiority is not going to exist for either side, that there will be a level of equilibrium here in terms of man pads and, and airframes and so on. But of course, I'm not an Air Force guy. Any any thoughts, Garn? Yeah, and this is where we we wish we had our friend um, John Ridge here. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't think they would. I wasn't when I when I when I saw the statement of of those MiG twenty nines. My first thought wasn't in their role as a as an air superiority fighter, but in the fact that if Ukraine is going to move an armored fist through, and knowing that they've gotten some AGM eighty eight some some harm um, anti radiation missiles in the past. Um, and knowing that they ha- that Ukraine has many more um, SU-24s in their force than they do in terms of you know MiG-29s or, or anything like that, uh, that these platforms could be used uh, to at least give some breathing room to the SU-24 so that we could see some sort of combined efforts between both the JDM-ERs that we we have been told that they have uh, and an ability to sort of suppress some of these air defenses so that the slower moving SU-24s can um, can bring some payload on targets as a maneuver force is moving through. 
That's what I'd like to see out of it. So, uh, and they need airframes to do that. They need airframes with with good avionics to do that. And so I'm hoping uh, that these MiG-29s serve that purpose and, and sort of fill a role, not just to augment the, the, the MiG-29 airframes they have, but that they can find a purpose with those MiG-29s to help um, to help move the armored force through. Yeah, definitely. I think, I mean, maybe just a, sh- a short pause here because we're, we're coming up on the hour, but just to remind people to please retweet the space. And if you have any questions, any comments, please uh, DM the host account or uh, raise your hand and uh, Jonathan, excuse me, uh, Joseph and, and Wendy will, will help you up. But on the Okay, so I'm, I I must say I disagree here in in the case that not not disagree with you personally, but I I'm still not convinced that even if we saw F-16s and we saw a letter from senators in the U.S. Senate uh, from eight U.S. senators supporting F-16s for Ukraine, I know that there's a NATO summit coming up in July. Uh, it would be great if something would be announced before that, but. You know, we've also got Finland and Sweden are are being major topics in in NATO. Even if the F-16s were announced, it would take them months. I'm sorry, I'm just not buying this whole air superiority thing. What I what I what I think the Ukrainians are probably having to plan right now is is okay. Well, we can prevent the Russians from having air superiority, um, but we may not achieve it ourselves, and so. It sort of all comes out in the wash, and we've got to do it on the ground. I know the Air Force guys would very much disagree with me on that, but that's kind of my thought, you know. Yeah, and and you know, and again, I, I you know, if if Mr. Ridge was here, but um, you know, and perhaps the use of those twenty nines is is in the opposite. Perhaps the use of those twenty nines is to provide um, better air defense saturation for some of the cruise missile waves and salvos that we've been seeing. Um, I don't, again, I don't know what their mix has been. Um, in terms of that, but extra airframes are going to help them with both coverage uh, and potentially, you know, if you can increase your air defense coverage, hopefully if there's some extra assets, they can project a little bit further forward. Um, but I was I was hoping we could see some of the JDAM ER assets um, on some of the, again, I don't know if the integration exists. Um, you know, little has been said about which aircraft, uh, you know, are going to be intended uh, with the JDAM ER. But I do think uh, some of those precision strike capability is going to be needed at the front, uh, and not necessarily to use that MiG twenty nine as a air superiority fighter, but but to be quick enough and survivable enough to to get close enough to help uh, push this armored fist through to suppress some things on the ground or to su- suppress um, some of the air defense assets as maneuver rolls through, so that the air can come through to uh, to what was once uh, the forward line, but can come through uh, a little bit safer to support the troops. Thank you very much. Uh, I just got a question in DMs, uh, which was more about the specific situation in Avdivka. Okay, so un- unfortunately, I don't have any graphics in the nest at this moment. It'd be uh, take a few moments to get one in. Uh, but basically, if we look just north of Donetsk City, just north of the airport, there is a suburb of the city named Avdivka. This has been uh, the front line just south of Avdivka, between Avdivka and Donetsk City and around the airport. This has been the front line between Russian separatists, uh, Russian military, and Ukrainian armed forces since 2014, basically. So it has not majorly changed. However, it has been a 
major point of conflict all the way since 2014 because of some of the main supply routes that run just to the southeast of Otivka. So, for example, the main highway from Donetsk to Olivka runs right past uh, this suburb. Russians in their latest offensive, they also attacked it heavily back in, in March, but in their latest offensive, they have been using the Bakhmut approach, I will say, uh, simplified to Avdivka. They have been trying to encircle the city by basically going tree line to tree line across the field uh, with heavy casualties to try to encircle the city. Currently, the city is encircled basically on three sides. I say city, um, but it is pretty much destroyed at this point. On all of these settlements along the front lines, the Russians have taken a systematic approach to destroy every building uh, to remove any kind of defense. But around Avdivka, it is essentially encircled on three sides with approximately a seven kilometer or five mile uh, opening for Ukrainian forces to get in and out of. Now, at that opening is a very large manufacturing facility, a coke plant, which has been heavily fortified and used as a defensive structure since 2014. So this is not a, an easy task uh, for the Russians to try to take, but they are allocating a lot of forces and taking a lot of casualties to try to take it. Now, what this would mean, and maybe we can do a more detailed segment on this uh, next week or in the weeks coming, um, but if they were to take Avdivka, this would uh, push the Ukrainian lines back probably about 10 to 15 kilometers, like we talked about around Bakhmut. It would straighten the Ukrainian lines. However, um, it would also push them further away from Donetsk City and also push away the threat from the Donetsk airport. Now, this airport is no longer a functioning airport. Of course, hasn't been a functioning airport since 2014. It's been a major site of fighting. But these kinds of facilities tend to have a lot of infrastructure around them, and they also tend to be valuable for militaries to use for as staging areas or as logistical hubs or so on. Anything that you can use that has warehouses and hangars and so on, even if they're partially destroyed, uh, is, is a valuable asset. So uh, the loss of Atifka would be uh, a bitter blow uh, for the Ukrainians. I actually look at it and I think, well, I think the situation may be quite stable, but of course this hinges also on Bakhmut. As long as the Russians are, are allocating so many resources, so many of what they have into, into Bakhmut, then this potentially has an impact that uh, the attacks on Avdivka are are less feed. Sorry, that was quite a mon long monologue there, Gurney. Anything to add? Yeah, you you're, you went right back to that question, right? So um, Avdivka has been of of you know strategic importance to Ukraine for for a long while, and has some of the most um, you know the 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 oldest fortifications. Um, and you're talking about the the coke plant there at the center of it. Um, you know, and and. Activity has been reported to be high in Avdivka. It, it's continuously high, but it seems to, uh, for the last you know three to four weeks, uh, been higher than normal. Um, just like Bakhmut has been been very high, very very high. 
Uh, so I, I, I just go back to that core question, right? If not uh, Bakhmut, then perhaps Avdivka. And I go to the observations, just making observations of, of what the Russians tend to do. And some others have mentioned this, you know, uh, whether it's Michael Kaufman or some other folks out there. Um, you know, the Russians tend to um, avoid urban combat if they can, but they don't always. They can't always do that. They tend to underperform in urban conflict. Um, and so what you see in different aspects, whether it's Avdivka or Bakhmut or before with with um different different sectors um, on the Ukrainian front line back in the summer, the, the Russians very much try to, whether it's in an actual encirclement or they're flanking, um, they do go for those weaker sides and try to do that in mass forces. So again, to your point here, I think it's spot on. Um, you know, you're seeing that attempt in Avdivka and my, my, I just ask myself, it's not, um, it doesn't seem to be particularly dire, but it's not uh, the greatest of situations. Uh, but I, I asked myself, you know, if not for the expenditure in Bakhmut, what would Avdivka look like? And Avdivka being uh, much more strategic and much closer to the, uh, uh, to the, to the, to the 2014 conflict than um, anything we've seen thus far. So uh, hopefully, you know, these things can be answered in hindsight and hopefully that, that the expenditure of Russian assets in Bakhmut has prevented uh, destabilizing some of the other Ukrainian lines, especially in Avdivka. Yeah, thanks, Gurney. All right, so I think, uh, I mean, that was kind of my look at this week, Bakhmut, Avdivka, um, kind of the framework that that I look at the war in, in terms of the political side and, and the Ramstein discussions or any of the NATO discussions. The timeline on the the MBTs and F-16s, the MIGs, and and transforming that into the tactical side. There was one one tweet that caught my eye today, um, and that was regarding a radio transceiver uh, being dropped by Russian drones. I think I I remember some some targeting uh, radios in, in my time in the military. This would have been. Uh, back a long time ago, uh, but I, I think you were looking at that at that tweet. Any any thoughts on this image of Russians dropping radios with drones? Yeah, so that's a, so I'll give the source of that. So um, many people in the audience probably listen or follow Tatargami UA um, as a as a source that's either on the ground or adjacent to the ground in Ukraine. Um, but uh, just recently posted uh, what looks like. Um, an emergency positioning beacon. Uh, this one just happens to be a Marine model and was conveyed to them that it was dropped by a Russian drone uh, 10 meters from a Ukrainian position uh, and that it looked like it was flashing and in transmit mode. So just to back up and say, well, what what is that? Uh, it's it's a beacon. It can obtain its position from satellites in terms of one one-way direction. So it's receiving information that tells it where it is. And then uh, if it's activated, it will broadcast out that position of where it thinks it is. It'll broadcast that out over over uh, a certain frequency. And then there's an additional frequency to let ships and planes searching for it sort of home in on the signal strength. So uh, it looks like this is, is potentially an attempt uh, whether uh, GPS is suppressed in that area and it's simply transmitting a signal for uh, the Russians to try to uh, radio find, you know, precisely find that location, meaning it's it's in front of a Ukrainian position. So we'll use uh, directional radio finding uh, to send in perhaps uh, artillery or an airstrike of some sort, 
or uh, perhaps GPS is functioning and it is getting a signal, uh, a precise GPS signal, and then uh, it, they're picking up that uh, that 406 megahertz broadcast um, and they're listening to what it's where it's saying it is and using that. So sort of a, I think it's it's probably a low tech way. Um, perhaps they don't have uh, drones that can do laser distance and GPS again. We don't know a lot. We don't know what the electronic warfare environment is, uh, whether they their drones are being suppressed from GPS. But it looks like an attempt uh, to use radio and possibly satellite GPS to direction find accurate coordinates of where Ukrainian positions are. Um, you know, and on a cost basis, it's it's fairly relatively cheap. You know, uh, six hundred bucks for a unit, eight hundred bucks for a unit. Yeah, it's small enough. If you drop it from a drone, uh, if a Ukrainian unit was to pick this up and perhaps interrogate it and bring it back somewhere, uh, that could potentially have implications. You wouldn't want to do that. So uh, just something something new that we've seen. You know, if you're asking yourself, why are we talking about this? Just we're seeing adaptations uh, from parties on the ground use systems that are not normally used that way and not traditional military systems, uh, but they, they could be effective or they may not be effective. But that's what that uh, post is. What, what are your thoughts, Charles? Yeah, so I I remembered uh, devices like that uh, for precision targeting. Um, what I what I thought was interesting because I I don't think the Russians really have the capability to so accurately precision target things with their artillery. However, uh, it may be useful for their drones, um, meaning. You know, if 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 something is picked up, then they know where their drone recons or or their drone flights need to be. We shall see. Uh, for me, I thought it was an interesting development. Shows innovation on the battlefield. Obviously, both sides are are innovating all the time. It's always the learning curve of of tactics, counter tactics, and and you move forward. Um, I have no doubt that the Ukrainian army has shown that it's better at this than the Russian army. Uh, clearly, it helps when you're when you're not losing uh, two battalions a day of, of knowledge, but uh, the the innovation cycle on the battlefield is is daily, I would say. But I I would like to pass it back over to to Jonathan just uh, to to summarize a bit. So a couple things that we'll be looking at this week: the situation in Avdiivka. Um, it is uh, encircled on on three sides. It has been important to the Ukrainians and to the to the Russians and Russian separatists. Uh, all the way back to 2014, uh, and it's been the the source of front lines uh, going all the way back. So uh, that will be interesting to see. For me personally, I'm also looking at it in terms of the decision making process, looking in that black box of, okay, we know the strategic inputs of manpower, material, will to fight. We know where the the advantages lie, um, and the disadvantages lie for the Ukrainians here. Uh, we know that. Western military material is on its way. We know that um, the will to fight amongst the Ukrainian population and Western politicians has been steadfast. We know uh, that Russia has a manpower advantage. But also looking at, you know, clearly seeing that, that the Ukrainian army um, has been extremely effective, very, very good, but they themselves are also going through a cultural transformation. And so one of the things we look at is that decision-making and some of the um, discussions with inside the Ukrainian military to ensure that, you know, or not to ensure that, but uh, to see, you know, look, this this is an effective force and, and it can 
has the right leadership um, at all levels. And um, so this is kind of what we'll be looking at over the next week. So thank you very much, Gurney, for joining us. And um, I'll pass it back over to Wendy. Thank you. Thank you, Charles. Uh, thank you, Gurney. Fantastic. I, I think Ad Adbifka is one of these places which is often overlooked. Um, it's it's definitely one of those places where the holding of the line, as Tom Scahill wrote in 1915, has been happening um, without the kind of coverage that Bakhmut has been getting. So thank you very much indeed. Uh, if I could just uh, politely remind everybody to uh, share or re retweet the space if you could and uh, put a little note in your alarm clock to um, make a pesky but polite phone call to your elected representatives tomorrow to remind them of, of uh, I want to thank them for their support for Ukraine and their continued support for military aid and uh, and the, um, the the causes that we've spoken about today in particular the Ukrainian deported deported Ukrainian children that was uh, um, we we spoke about at the top of the last hour, and if you join late and uh, you'd like to catch up on that um, and all of the latest analysis from Yale's Humanitarian Research Lab, you can do so on our Spotify account, which is uh, incredibly popular. So uh, I'm going to it's give it's a great pleasure to to introduce um, uh, two of our uh, uh, other members of the team here, Bianada and. Um, and Ben and Joseph um, and Bianca, I believe you're going to speak on uh, a story behind the headlines with regards to Nord Stream. Yeah, that's that's right, Jonathan. We are uh, talking especially uh, about uh, Nord Stream two and how Russia and Germany were able to complete Nord Stream two after uh, U.S. imposed sanctions uh, on the. Nord Stream 2, and, and everyone who is working with them. So, Joseph, um, should we start? Yeah, so I guess we now you know it's our, our episodes don't really have a theme, but I guess if, if we had a theme this week, it would probably be criminality, right? It's uh, sort of uh, we've been following, obviously, uh, the, the entire invasion is criminal and then drafting people into these uh, crazy uh, human wave style attacks is uh, an, another aspect of, of all of this. But, you know, I, I think broadly speaking, right, uh, we've been discussing uh, the the ICC uh, and, and war crimes. And, and I think this is just another example of kind of uh, Russian criminality, but it's a much more subtle form. Right. Uh, and I, I think, you know, essentially we, we, we follow a lot of various uh, pieces of information, little little bits and bobs. And and uh, we, we do our best to there's a lot of stuff i guess that's ongoing or unfolding and it's it's difficult to know like when do you when do you discuss them when do you wait and and figure out a good moment that might be significant uh to actually talk about it so i think this is maybe a case where we we have we, we you know uh b and i has been following this case it's uh something that's uh quite interesting i think it's kind of a case study more broadly into russian corruption and and how it's used for soft influence in in a democratic society. So I think that's kind of the idea is that we're looking at kind of an ongoing developing investigation about Nord Stream in Germany uh, and kind of how Russia was able to use the the levers of democratic society and some of the tools to 
managed to obtain some level of soft influence to uh, secure some interest. So again, not not as obviously direct and and you know violent as as what we're seeing on the battlefield and and you know what's being discussed at the ICC, but it's uh, still a very insidious form of corruption that Russia. Uh, constantly is kind of projecting uh, around uh, democratic societies around the globe. So, uh, yeah, Bianade, if you wanted to uh, take it away, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely, Joseph. And it's, it, I think that's a great point to start because Russia has one thing. Russia has energy, Russia has resources. And with this energy and resources, there comes power. And with cheap energy and resources, you may or may not be good for protecting some really good things and really expensive things. So the Nord Stream pipeline, as we know, starts in Russia, goes through the Baltic Sea and will end in Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. For reasons we will call not Mecklenburg-Vorpommern, in Germany we call it MECPOM. Uh, and uh, I think that's beautiful. So uh, we will stick with MacPom. Yeah, like I mentioned, it's close to the Baltic Sea in the north, and there is um, where Lubmin lies. Um, in the near of Greifswald, there is a small town uh, where the Nord Stream enters into Germany. Maybe I should start with, with the background of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern and how the state government got so involved in all this corruption. So Mecklenburg-Vorpommern MacPom really doesn't have such a great economy. It has its economy mainly has the maritime sector because they are at the coast. They have a little bit of aeronautics technology there. That's not bad, but we all know uh, with COVID um, they also had not the greatest years. Uh, and also they have tourism there, which is only in the summer. It's Many of these Germans know it's nice to have a nice holiday at the Baltic Sea at MacPom, but there isn't that great effort in the economy, except there is where Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream 1 enters the country. So, because Nord Stream 1 was really good for the economy there, they thought, hey, more ship gas out of Russia, we are building Nord Stream 2, we are in this. So it happened that after on the 19th January of 2021, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on the Russian reset fortune, which gas from used to complete the construction of Nord Stream 2 uh, and its owners, and basically sanctioned everything around completing Nord Stream 2. Every company which would work with them, with gas from, would be sanctions, most likely. Uh, they announced this at uh, was quite a shock. So how we proceed from there? The state parliament started a foundation, a so-called climate and environmental foundation, because, you know, if there is something like a pipeline, there's something built, you have to take care of your economy, uh, ecology, and uh, your environment, and uh, your climate. It's it's really important. And the SPD, the CDU, and the left party came together and tried to sell it under the name of Climate and Environmental Foundation uh, for Environmental Protection. Obviously, the Green Party was not amused. Also, uh, the environmental organizations uh, here in Germany, as uh, for example, NABU and the WWF Germany, criticized the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the foundation because of the guise of environmental protection, climate protection is, an, is undermined and the climate crisis 
presence being treated for further basis. The German environmental aid described the foundation as a fake foundation and took legal action against the foundation's recognition by the foundation's supervisory authority. Sadly, the administrative court in Schwerin rejected the urgent application against the foundation and the foundation for formal reasons. So, uh, they are not off to a good start with this foundation because everyone knows what do they want to do with this foundation. They want to break sanctions with this foundation. We will see in the further proceeding how the state of Mecklenburg basically started a fake foundation to go around sections to hide the companies which were working on complete, completing Nord Stream 2 on the German side, on the German end, and protect them before sanctions the state government of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern. You will need to let that sink down. How and for what do they did it? I would say personally, obviously. It was about money, not money for personal use, um, because they started this foundation in a kind of special legal capacity, uh, a, a GBR court in Germany. It's a foundation with a legal capacity uh, which can participate in other legal identities uh, or entities uh, such as uh, um, other companies uh, here in Germany. Um, they are usually a uh, non-profit, um, but we will we will uh, read more about it. Um, through their non-profit status, um, the not only uh, the supervising authority for foundations is um, there to check them, but also the tax authorities. And this is where we will have later a really really funny and interesting uh, encounter. Joseph. Any questions from your side up to now? No, I think it's all pretty straightforward, right? I mean, we have a a, a province in Germany that's uh, kind of down on its luck, right? It's seen a, a major economic opportunity here in uh, the Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, they see sanctions, obviously, as a major obstacle to that happening. So they've uh, argued, I mean, it's, it's pretty evident, I would say, and the source for all this is sort of public court record, right? This is kind of where where all this information is coming from, uh, that, you know, the, the, the state government of this pro or the, the government of this province in Germany, uh, facilitated, uh, a, a way to get around sanctions and a way to, uh, allow a Russian kind of organ of soft influence into Germany. I think that's, that's, uh, sort of the, the summary so far. Is that correct? Being yeah, 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 yeah. And, uh, thank you for the summary because I forget to mention McPom is really, really, really not worthy. I'm from Saxony-Anhalt. That's the few, if you come, if, if you calculate it for the kind of space we have, uh, uh, the kind of land uh, we, we own our state, this is really the, the, the country, the state, the state basically uh, in our country is the lowest GDP compared to the size. So it's really, they are really in, in dire need. So they are always happy to, 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 to get money in. And not only money from, from, from Nord Stream itself, but everything what's around. Because remember, we are still talking about a non-profit climate organization, foundation, basically. So let's get back to the foundation because every foundation needs capital. And let's follow the trail of money. So the state basically invested themselves 200,000 euro and they added at a later point uh, 50,000 euro more. So we have 
a quarter of a million euro from the German state of Macpon. Nord Stream 2 and Gazprom itself, um, represented by Gazprom, put in for start 20 million, which was planned to extend it to be uh, to 60 million. This um, sounds interesting. Nice money, nice sum. And uh, remember, uh, this foundation can can start companies with this money. What whatever they want to do, there is a way to 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 work with this money. But that's not the only way uh, they got money. The foundation almost acted like I would would describe it as maybe not as a shell company for Gazprom, um, but they worked on a commission. The foundation company basically received 10% of the contract amount from Nord Stream 2 contract. There's contracts they closed, uh, which were closed by them, which would add up in the end to around 80 companies they um, contracted with, uh, mainly from northern Germany. <laughs> Who would thought that? Uh, and uh, um, they were awarded orders in a volume of uh, 165 million euros. So... Um, 10% of that. <sighs> that's, that's just not real money. Um, but since um, we have no open books at the moment, um, we're still waiting to see uh, how much money really this climate foundation got. Why will we most likely know it? Uh, because the Bundestag already started finally an investigation and um, the involvement of the state uh, make pump uh, into this foundation because you see it's already really really sketchy but it gets more sketchy you remember the story with the tax office there was a story that uh, no gift tax was paid uh, for the payments made by Gazprom you know this 20 million which Gazprom basically said hey you are a foundation where does a foundation get money from either someone dies and says hey I will give Texas money and start a foundation with us. Please do it. This is my bill. Or someone says, hey, I will give this foundation this money as a present. But you still should have to, to pay uh, taxes on this uh, in, in Germany. And um, there was claimed by the foundation um, that they applied for an exemption. But sadly, the documents were lost in the Blitzdamm tax office. Um, according to uh, the Strasbourg Public Prosecutor's Office, an employee said to have burned the documents in a private fireplace. You know, that's totally normal to do. I, I really think when I read these lines, in, in what kind of banana republic do these thing, people think we live? It's, it's, it's amazing how blatantly corrupt they try to hire. I, I mean, it's it's like 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 my dog eat my homework. Really, an employee take took took this data home, allegedly, and burned it in the fireplace. Uh, I I'm I'm out of words. So we discussed this umbrella, how they worked, how they worked with all the companies, and the umbrella really was they hadn't to disclose which companies they are working. There were uh, questions about public uh, information acts and something like this. This was the company since foundation worked. But um, uh, I think it took multiple lawsuits, lawsuits and we are still waiting on the public data. I hope the Bundestag will provide more. 
because we do don't know really how much money uh, to go and all these companies not only we are interested but I'm pretty sure the US government uh, at least the former Trump administration um, which started the sanction packet uh, would be interesting uh, interested in to know uh, which companies are involved in this so Bionati, I think you you explained uh, a lot of great points and and I think you know for for all of us right I think for you uh, you can detect your surprise and I think for me as well Right. In an otherwise normal democratic society, it's very bizarre behavior to have someone behave in such an extreme way. Right. Uh, a tax official like burning documents and things like this. Right. Um, for for a foreign government. Right. Um, so so I, I asked I was talking to Ben about this and Ben used this phrase strategic graft. And, and I, I thought that was like a really interesting concept. And apparently this is the concept in economics that's being uh, sort of developed uh, further. So I don't know, Ben. Uh, I think that's maybe why you raised your hand. Did you did you want to uh, discuss strategic graft uh, for the listeners, maybe? Uh, with pleasure. Actually, um, I think graft is the proper word because the 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 expression that is usually used is strategic corruption. Uh, but in this case, it's very peculiar because we are not talking about corruption. Uh, it's the law. They followed the law. They didn't break uh, any any law up until the moment when they started burning documents. But very very far uh, once they've been caught with their hands in the in in the jar. So the question the question is uh, uh, what is it? And I think uh, unlike what Bayonada said, and I really respect the work that Bayonada has done there, but I wouldn't call that uh, corruption. It's both deeper and and uh, less straightforward. Um, it's manipulation. It's influence. And as you said, uh, Joseph, it's graft in the, the more in the wider sense of the term. Um, and when it comes to um, to the words, the point, the the word strategic is absolutely crucial, because uh, I don't know if you follow this, uh, but if you live in a, in a normal country, uh, i.e., not Norway, um, you've probably heard tons of your elected officials going to jail at some point or another because they took bribes, because uh, there was some corruption, and because uh, some company wanted a little something. They worded them to it, but this is all. This is all corruption. This is um, very important. This is catastrophic. Anyone who's into uh, the the economics of institutions knows how uh, corrosive cor corruption can be. But on the other hand, it's not targeted against the core of the system. It's here and there, uh, but not a giant strategic offensive. And what we saw with uh, Gazprom in general is that what they practice is uh, corruption. They do not practice corruption for the benefit of the CEO of Gazprom directly or for any anyone personally. What they're doing is that they're trying to weaken the state they're confronted with. They're trying to uh, have access to their, to their uh, uh, political elite. Uh, this is called, I think, elite capture, which I think is quite cool as an expression as well. And this is truly, truly what we've um, uh, witnessed. As uh, Bayanada said, uh, this is usually something we see being done in banana republics, but we need to step down from uh, our uh, high horses and admit the fact that um, every single Western uh, country, every single country that we can think of, except Norway, uh, as is probably exposed to these sort of problems, uh, and 
Um, this is something that we all have to to pay very very uh, close attention to, and this is definitely a call to action. This is a problem that is not going to be solved in the coming ten ten years in the coming year or whatever. It's it's a long term effort and fighting corruption, corruption, having your hands cleaned, as the the Italians used to say, uh, is more important to everything. Uh, bit political system, uh, uh, way of life, uh, and even our economic destiny than probably anything else. So uh, really, really thank you to Bayanada for raising this very, very important point. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, and um, I want want to clarify here again. That's not corruption for money, uh, in, in my opinion. That's maybe corruption for power, I would call it this way. Because, like I said, they, they personally never, never took money as far as we know. I I don't know if how how it will work out because like I said the Bundestag has an investigation and um, the line between how we call it lobbyism is um, uh, is 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 an interesting point. Um, if if someone would be so kind to bring up someone, please, um, I think he has points yeah. up uh, before I continue. All right, Sylvan, so, you you wanted to add something. Thank you very much, Bionada. This was uh, very, very interesting, and I think we cannot talk about this topic um, enough. Um, and it's a really mind-blowing story, and also a line-blowing story or a pipeline-blowing story, as we have learned just recently. But I wanted to come back to the point of strategic corruption on the highest level. And I think we cannot talk about all this complex without mentioning the name Gerhard Schröder who was obviously German Bundeskanzler between 2000, uh, between uh, 19, 1908 and 2005, um, and who played a key story here, a key, a key role in the story, of course. Um, because uh, just shortly after he left office in 2005, he was hired um, by the Russians, by Gazprom, um, to chair the supervisory board of, of uh, Nord Stream 1. Um, and he hold this office, um, I think, from from 2000, end of 2005 already. So very months after he left office as the German Bundeskanzler, uh, who was negotiating uh, on the highest level um, with government um, all over the world, including the Russians, um, and then took over this um, private um, uh, business um, position. And um, having all this knowledge, of course, and bringing all his um, also secret knowledge um, confidential um, knowledge uh, with him, um, this was a very big um, scandal, of course, and the key scandal here, which led also to um, an opening of possibilities and chances for the Russians to infiltrate uh, the German um, political system and, um, and most of all, of course, Schröder's party, SPD, and all of the main stakeholders we are talking about with regard to MECPOM, uh, belong to this party, including the recent um, the Prime Minister, uh, Mrs. Schwesig, um, and also the, the Mr. Zellerin, who was um, the Prime Minister before, and who was then, I think, right, Bionade, heading this so-called Environmental Foundation, right? And if I remember right, yeah, yeah. even after the start of the full-scale invasion of the Russians, he gave interviews in the German TV um, that they would like to fulfill the uh, uh, the, the, the 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 tasks of this foundation. So it was 
totally weird. So they they stuck to this um, uh, 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 shit, right? And Schwesig until now um, is justifying what they did. Um, and we can only hope that um, the more, I think, the more um, justifiable um, possible uh, breaking of laws like this burning of documents and so will lead to more some hard facts, let's say, which will really uh, also lead to more personal consequences because we haven't seen any personal consequences yet, right? And Schröder was the one who gave the Russians the possibility also through his personal friendship to Putin, um, which I think yes, until today he has never publicly uh, 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 distanced uh, himself. So he was uh, he held a couple of other functions for the for the Russians and for Gazprom. He was also chair of the board of directors for Nord Stream Two then, and he was also nominated for the Gazprom supervisory board um, itself and only rejected um, uh, because uh, there was a lot of public pressure then. And three months after the Russians started the full-scale invasion, so there was no inner distance, I think, um, to this, and still not is. And I think this played really a key role here. And um, and we have to look also in other countries. I think what the Russians did there with um, the 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 upper uh, pile of um, 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 the, the the state, right? Look at Austria and look at other countries. What they did there and whom they all hired in different functions. So thanks, Bionade, for, for raising this topic here. I think it's really very relevant. Yeah, yeah. And and, and I'm, I'm not even done. I mean, there is more, but um, I think we are in a really, really great discussion. Um, Gerhard Schröder, yeah. Um, if, if, I'm not sure if there is an English translation until now, but um, there's a really great book uh, from uh, Reinhard Bingener and Markus Wehler um, called um, The Moscow Connection, um, The Moscow Connection, um, The Schroeder Network um, and uh, Germany's Way Into Dependency. Um, I will read this book too soon. I will, um, yeah, we'll keep you informed about this topic, but... Yeah, like I mentioned in the beginning, uh, the Russian ship, which was sanctioned, uh, was replaced later uh, by a ship, uh, which was basically put by the Climate Foundation. Um, because, yeah, which which Climate Foundation wouldn't buy a ship uh, having to uh, build a pipeline through the Baltic Sea. So it's, it's, it was a normal thing to do. Um, like Zora mentioned, um, Erwin Zellering, um, this was a, a chairman of the foundation. Um, he later announced that uh, he would go to court in order to not uh, comply with the foundation's obligation to provide information to citizens and journalists after Fraktisch um, Staat basically asked the state uh, won the case uh, and court against uh, the refusal to hand over the files. Uh, the files basically are with which companies um, they worked. Um, Zedrin continued to refuse to provide information and the foundation appealed to the higher regional court in April 2022, uh, which was rejected um, three months later. Uh, the foundation had to provide the information, um, but until now it's uh, not really public what is about this information, which companies were involved. So, yeah, um, 
then we come to the to, to the really funny thing and I will keep you posted on this topic uh, because on April 14th uh, yeah um, they ended basically they ended the, the environmental foundation um, the Bundestag is doing now really an investigation in the whole thing um, because how could it happen that a German state government basically vouched for this and I have to say not only a German state government but also the German federal government um, vouched for Nord Stream 1 financially at some point so the whole involvement needs a closer look but I think with a look on Nord Stream 2 and especially on the Climate Foundation um, we had so many events just in about one and a half years, 18 months, um, that it's hard to pack them into half an hour of storytelling. So um, if, if you have more questions, if you're interested in this topic, uh, if, if you want to have a discussion, um, you're welcome up in the panel. Um, I especially liked ben, Ben's point about CZZ hybrid form of warfare, how, how how Russia basically tries to influence us and not only Germany but also other countries uh, with energy. And I thank you, Bernard. I really appreciate the work you've been putting into this. Um uh I think this certainly makes a great um uh segment for another week. We here at Tochini we, we always do aim for the the story behind the headlines and uh um just like we did with the deported Ukrainians at the top of the last hour, this certainly um, gives us the is 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 food for food for thought and um uh, a topic to be discussed further. Um, uh, so please do stay tuned, everybody, for this time next week. Um, I'm going to pass it over to Ben, who's here with the economic news. Thank you, Bernada, and um, thank you, Soren, and um, uh, Ben. What uh, what would you like to um uh, to bring us from the world of economics. Hi guys. Um, well, I only have 15 minutes. I was I was told I only had 15 minutes to speak. Uh, it's too short. I'm not going to be speaking about economics. I'm going to be speaking about old ladies, if you don't mind. Uh, is it okay with you, uh, Wendy? Can I speak about old ladies? Um, I believe that's absolutely fine with me. Okay, fantastic. So, uh, the one old lady I wanted to talk about is called, well, there's two. Um, there's two old ladies I want to talk about. The first one is called Violetta P. Uh, let, let's keep her uh, name secret for the moment. Um, uh, you know, we are we like to, to preserve people, people anonymity. Uh, Violetta P. Uh, found herself one day on uh, the sanction list of the EU, which was, of course, a big problem for her because she's 83, a Russian pensioner, and she has a lot of business to do in London in particular, but also Frankfurt, uh, Paris, Berlin, uh, name it. Uh, so she was very, very crossed uh, by that, uh, that information. So she decided to sue. She went to London uh, and she sued for wrongful designation as part of the EU sanction. She said, yes, I am the um, uh, close relative of someone who is on this um, uh, on the sanction list. That's perfectly okay. But there is no reason for me to be 
on the sanction list myself. And the judge looked at it and said, yeah, that makes sense. Um, I don't see why you would be on the sanction list and removed her from the sanction list. For those of you who are uh, who have followed the news last week, of course, Paul Tapi is the mother of Evgeny Prigozhin. Um, so she was removed from the sanction list. This in itself is not too much of a problem. Uh, she will be back there very soon, just under another reason. Um, possibly that she helped her son escape, uh, uh, avoid rather sanctions herself. But uh, where it's important is that this case shows that a lot of people who are on the personal sanction list are actively trying to be removed from that list. Uh, of course, contesting the reason why you're on that list is possible for someone who, like Violetta, is uh, there because she is the mother of. But if you are on the sanction list in your own right, it's a lot more difficult to go and see a judge and say, there's no reason for me to be there. There's about 1,400 people on those on the on the European list, uh, and um, there's it's very difficult to to be to be removed. Uh, unless, unless uh, you stop doing the things that the EU is reproach reproaching you from doing. Uh, and this is the tack that has been followed by two men, uh, Pet Haven and Michael Friedman. Uh, both of them are the partial owners of this enormous Russian bank called Alpha Bank. Um, so, uh, what they decided to do is they said, well, since we're on the list because we're friends with Putin and because we are uh, the owners of the bank, very simple, we're going to sell the bank, uh, the, 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 the shares of the bank that we own, and uh, we uh, solemnly declare that Putin is really, really not our friend anymore, and anyway, we're moving to another country, so we don't have any relationship with him. And that was it. Then the question becomes, what should, uh, well, be the EU, uh, Britain, or the US do in those cases? Should they remove the people from the list once they stop doing the things they've been accused of? Uh, or should they not remove them? Should they leave them there? And um, and that's that's a big question. So uh, is it a loophole? Is it, uh, is it intended? It's um, it's th there's there's a massive question there. It's such a big question that actually uh, somebody many of you may know, um, who is the chief of staff of Alexei Navalny, ne Leonid Velkov, uh, has recently penned an entire uh, article in the Economist uh, about this, uh, where he exposes this. And less than two days later, he was caught signing a letter in favor of Michael Friedman for him to be removed from the sanction list, and he was promptly expelled from uh, uh, Navalny's uh, organization. So this is a hot-button topic. This is, uh, but beyond the scandal, it's also very important because this is one of the most important weapons that is in the arsenal of democracies short of open warfare. This is the, the, the ultimate anti-hybrid warfare weapon that we have. Um, it was mostly um, uh, pushed forward and uh, almost invented, I would say, by Bill Bowder, 
2012, uh, when he uh, convinced the American senators to vote the Magnesti Act. Um, and so this is a, a, a storage system. This is a well-known system. This is uh, um, uh, something that has been extremely useful until now, but is it still something that we want we want to use? Uh, and yes, I know uh, most of the people who are under sanctions are absolutely horrid, um, but the point is not to uh, be moral. The point is not to be. Uh, the point is not to feel good. The point is to be efficient. What is it that we want to achieve? with those personal sanctions. Um, and um, is those personal sanctions a good way, an efficient way of achieving that goal? And I'm saying that goal, and I'm staying vague to be completely honest, because as, um, well, our good friend, uh, Thomas Blaschowski, uh, who is from Brussels, as his name indicates, um, has remarked, this is a problem. Neither the EU, nor Britain, nor the US have come up with a clear definition of the goal they're trying to attain with personal sanctions uh, or with sanctions in general. What is it that they're trying to do? What is it that they're aiming at? We're not even quite sure what the target is. Yes, we say Russia, sure. But like the whole of Russia, we're not trying to we're not trying to attack a babushka in our in our in our panties on the fifth floor of uh, of a building in in Pshok, um, So, what is it that we're aiming at? Are we aiming at the Russian army? Are we aiming at the Russian regime? Are we are we aiming at the the economy as a whole? Are we just saying, well? That both the regime and the army are resting on the economy, and as such, anything that will break the economy, that will hurt the Russian economy, will hurt the budget, and as such, will hurt the war effort. Hence, we're aiming at the economy. Those questions have not been answered, uh, which is a big, big, big problem. Uh, if anyone is in politics and is listening, uh, please push for this. Um, a clear target is is uh, it's a good thing. Uh, we like we know what um, happened to the Russian army because they did not have a, a clear target. We need uh, uh, an aim. We need to know what it is, what what winning means for us. What me winning means for the people designing the sanctions. So um, this is still uh, still very uh, unclear. Tomas, and as well as a member of the Open Society, uh, Tika. I've trained to to tell to say her name correctly. Um, it's difficult because it's half Georgian, half Dutch, so it it makes every single muscle of your face work. So her name is Tika Sverdatse Um So I've just called her Tika. I hope she doesn't mind. Um, has pointed out um, that um, to design sanctions, we need to understand Russian political economy. We need to say, in our opinion, this is how Russian political economy works. And as a result, this is how we are going to aim at it. Um, the, the, and 
when when you look at it, uh, we should also not think of we should not overestimate the impact of sanctions. There's things that sanctions can do, and there's things that sanctions cannot do. Most importantly, what they cannot do, not really at least, is to affect directly the way the economy is run in Russia itself. You can sanction even Popov as much as you want. It will never prevent him from opening a bank account in Moscow. Ever. It will never prevent him from making a transfer from Vladivostok to St. Petersburg. Ever. So this is not what we should be uh, aiming at. What we should be aiming at are things coming in and out of Russia, be them financial uh, transactions or goods. And we should aiming at things that in one way or another are related to the Russian regime, the Russian war effort, or the Russian economy, uh, and that are happening outside of Russia. Uh, and this is where the, the, the example of uh, presented by Violada is so good because uh, all this, all he talked about could have been prevented had the sanctions that had been decided in Washington been applied in Germany. So by preventing the Russians from running amok outside of Russia, by preventing especially people that have been recognized as agents of the Russian state from doing anything uh, outside of the most mundane activities is absolutely crucial. Mikhail Friedman, uh, you remember the guy who uh, is trying to say that he's cut with Putin, that he sold his bank, and as such, he should be taken out of the sanction list. Mikhail Friedman has been caught a few months back uh, and he said that he had sold uh, some of his companies, that they should not be under sanction, but he had sold them to his number two, a man he saw every day, with whom he spoke every day, with whom presumably there's a very strong link of friendship and trust, and as such, it's a pure smokescreen. So we know these guys are going to be using smokescreen. We know that Prigozhin is using his mother you know, we know that Friedman is using his uh, right arm. Um, we we know all this, and as a result, we should be extremely strict, extremely harsh. These people should not be allowed to do any financial transaction in the West. They need the West. The West is their is their piggy bank. They cannot trust to they cannot trust uh, Russia if they leave their money in Russia. They need the West to do all of these crucial, uh, these crucial activities. By targeting them, we would decrease Russian influence and we would, as a result, decrease the ability of the Russian state to fight its war of aggression and extermination against the Ukrainian people. So that's it. Uh, I, I mentioned the fact that I wanted to speak about another um, old lady. Uh, her name is Maria. Uh, this one you know fairly intimately. She's been on um, she's been on the news quite a lot. Uh, in particular, uh, she has her own TV show. And uh, she recently, uh, it's Maria Tarrao, sorry, uh, wrong one. It's a foreign ministry spokesman. Uh, mistaken. 
Uh, so Maria Zakharova, uh, she recently declared to a rush to the Russian press that uh, Russia was ready to um, uh, go for a diplomatic settlement, whatever that means, if the West agreed to lift all sanctions and lawsuits which really indicates how badly this is hurting them. And what I hope is that she won't understand what I said right now as um, a way of criticizing the sanctions as such. They're crucial. They're really helping. What we need to do is to know exactly what we're doing, to be precise and not to uh, be for, for, to prevent any possibility of criticism on this. Um, and to help our Ukrainian friends even further and to force the Russians out with the sanctions. On this, uh, I wish you a great day. This is the end of my speech, and I missed that Charles had his hand up. Charles. Yeah, thank you very much, Ben. Um, you know, we recently talked about also shadow sanctions or shadow reserves, excuse me, uh, and Bionata highlighted the ability of Russian money with local collaboration to to use different entities. Um, I mean, when we're looking at, my impression is, is that when we're looking at personal sanctions and shadow reserves, I mean, it's a very financially savvy group that has to be fought against. Um, is this... My my challenge question is 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 this destined to be a, a continual cat and mouse game, um, where it's never done? Um, are resources lacking? Is is an approach lacking? Um, for example, in my mind, I think of it as a, you know, combating organized crime. Um, what what's what's the issue there? Um, yeah, <laughs> to to. Um... I don't think that there, it's the same. Uh, in one case, um, uh, that of shadow sanctions, uh, sorry, of uh, shadow reserves, uh, it is just a matter of things hidden in plain sight. Uh, this is a big pots of money that look uh, okay, but that should be sanctioned. Uh, so it's just a matter of recognizing where they are, what they are, and, and sanctioning them. In the case of personal sanctions, it's slightly different because it's a big picture. Sorry, we need to understand why we're sanctioning individuals, um, and um, once we've understood why we're doing it, we can uh, tr try to we can try to to uh, uh, to win. To, uh, just simply, um, there's um, there's a political economist I quite like whose name is um, Anders. Esplint, uh, assume is uh, Swedish, um, who says that the force circle, he says that Putin is um, is surrounded by four circles of, of uh, elite. The four circle are those people who have links uh, with the exterior and who um, basically what they're doing is that they use the West as a piggy bank and they it allows the Russian elites to benefit from uh, from well-run institutions, um, and at the same time be present in the um, in the, the the far west sort of world that is uh, that is Russia, the frontier, the constant frontier mentality 
that they have. And that's that's um, by, by severing those links between the piggy bank and the and the far west, you force them to just live in the far west, and as a result, the the, the system collapses. I so so this is what Tika was saying. It's a it's a, it's a big story. It's a, a political economy understanding. You you need to need to to draw a model of who you're facing and then attacking him by what you think the model is. It's a lot more complex, I would say. I will then answer your question. Joseph, we're one minute late. Oh, well, Ben, uh, I think we could, uh, we could end it if you like, but I, I maybe was, I was wondering, yeah, maybe my question's a bit too big. Maybe we can save it for next week, combat. Yeah, maybe. Oh, and, and big question. You give me time to prepare and we can have a sort of back and forth like that. Uh, thank you. Thank you for everybody who's contributed today. The charges this week against two of the, as at this point, alleged perpetrators of this war and invasion against Ukraine make headlines. I, I totally, we always aim for the story behind the headlines, whether the story constitutes uncomfortable facts or heartening ones. Um, truth, certainty are, are obtained from these. People are quick to believe that which they wish to be true, are they not? For Ukrainians, this week is another week of survival and mourning, but it marks yet another week of steadfast resolution to ensure the continuity of their country and the security of their children's future. As Ukrainian soldier Roman Trokiumet stated this week, it is necessary to be very strong. In March 2023, we witnessed Ukraine's fortitude. Their road to justice is nearer. Ukraine endures, as does its allies' commitment to its victory. Slava, Ukraini. Slava. On behalf of the brave. On behalf of our warriors. On behalf of the brave. Wings for freedom. Shalom, Ukraine.